When it comes to the objects we find in our solar system, almost all of them originate from within our solar system, right? The planets are always here, the moons are always here, the comets and asteroids, they may fly closer to the sun or farther from the sun depending on what gravitationally influenced them, but they all originated as far as we know from within the solar system. But our sun and our star system exist within the great confines of the Milky Way galaxy, which itself has hundreds of billions of other stars, trillions of planets, and countless other rogue objects, objects that exist throughout interstellar space. In 2017, we discovered for the very first time an interloper, an object from beyond our solar system that flew through our neighborhood and exited on the way out. We call this an interstellar interloper. We've named this one Oumuamua, and we are so curious as to its origin. Where did it come from? What's it all about? And where are we going to find the next one? Where do these objects come from? It's a fascinating and brand new field of science, and we're going to explore it here on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Objects from beyond the solar system have got to be out there and abundant and ubiquitous, but having an encounter with them is certainly extremely rare. I'm real pleased to welcome to the show astrophysicist Paul Sutter of The Ohio State University. Paul has a YouTube series, Ask a Spaceman, which is spectacular. Paul is a science communicator, second to none, and maybe one if you have certain fans out there. Um, And then he is a brand new author of a fantastic book, and I am so excited to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Paul Sutter. Thank you so much for having me. And Paul, before we get into anything else, can I ask you to plug your book? What's it called? When's it coming out? And where can people get their hands on it? Why, thank you for the opportunity to plug my stuff. Uh, I My book is Your Place in the Universe, Understanding Our Big Messy Existence, published by Prometheus. It will be in bookstores nationwide, including Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, IndieBound, and more on November 20th. 2018. So if this podcast is released in the future, just go out to your bookstore right now. You can also go to Amazon and buy it digitally or get yourself a physical copy. And this podcast should come out for the general public on November 21st, so you will be one day into its release. You'll go out and get it right now. If you're too lazy, you log on to Amazon and you get it right now. It'll arrive at your door in two days because that's how Amazon works. That's right. What matters is that you buy a copy. All right. Support your local author, everybody. And so let's dive into this topic of an interstellar interloper. Now, when this object came through the solar system, there was no argument that it came from within the solar system. Everyone was absolutely clear that this object had to have come from beyond the solar system. Paul, when we see an object coming in through our solar system, what are your favorite ways to tell if it could have come from within our solar system or whether we have to look beyond for an explanation? Oh, that's a really good question because 
it caught this object when it was discovered caught everyone by surprise right we weren't looking for objects to coming out of the solar system it's not like we had a dedicated survey just for this and when we saw it we reconstructed its orbit and that is the essential way to deciding the origins whenever we see a comet or an asteroid or something show up we watch it for a little bit and because we understand gravity we can take those observations and turn it into an entire history of its of its orbit and immediately this object jumped out for attention because it was coming in screaming hot way faster than anything else in the solar system and it was coming in from a really janky angle it wasn't in the plane of our solar system so it wasn't acting like an asteroid it wasn't acting like a comet it was acting like something else and the reconstructed orbit showed that this object was clearly coming on a trajectory from outside our home solar system. I think that's that's absolutely how you have to do it, right? We when we observed this, it was already it had already passed its perihelion. It had already passed closest approach to the sun. And that's not a surprise because we don't generally look far out of the plane of the solar system in a wide survey to try and find, oh, what objects might be hanging out there? Because most of the objects that would come through would be small and faint and a lot of people don't realize when you're looking at an object that's reflecting sunlight we're used to an object if it emits its own brightness then its brightness falls off as one over the distance squared right if you get twice as far away from the sun it's only a quarter as bright but if you're looking at an object that's reflecting our sunlight and it's twice as far away it's not going to be a quarter as dim it's going to be one sixteenth the brightness because the sunlight has to go all the way out that double the distance that object is only gonna absorb a quarter of the light and then it has to reflect that light back to us so it has to again travel that same amount of distance spreads out as one over r squared again so the farther away an object is it gets really dim when we found it moving away from us it happened to be close to in the plane of the solar system at the moment and it was by tracking it saying, oh, this is unusual, that we were actually able to reconstruct its orbit, find that it not only originated way out of the plane of the solar system, that it never could have encountered a massive planet like Jupiter or Neptune to give it a gravitational kick, and yet coming in when we reconstruct what was its speed when it first entered the solar system, if it had originated from within like the Oort cloud or something, we might expect a few hundred meters a second or maybe up to one kilometer a second. It came in at 26 kilometers a second, which is very, very, very fast, way too fast for something to have originated from within our solar system. But that's almost exactly the average speed that stars move relative to our sun as they orbit through the Milky Way. So when we take a look at all that information, we say, absolutely, this is something that should have originated from another solar system. And that's not too surprising. Every quarter of a million years or so, we know that a typical star will have a close enough encounter with the sun where, where a star may pass through the outer Oort cloud of our own solar system, right? Right now, 
Alpha Centauri, Proxima Centauri, that trinary star system, that's the closest one to us. But distances change over time as all the stars in the galaxy move relative to each other. When this object came through our solar system, people argued over whether it was a comet or an asteroid, and people went back and forth on this for a while before just deciding to designate it with an I for being an interstellar object. Paul, why, why were people arguing over whether this is a comet or an asteroid and finally decided on let's not even, let's not even pick one? All right, the, the classification of Oumuamua is important. And, and we're not debating about you know definitions. It's actually a much more fundamental discussion, which is we're trying to understand the origins of Oumuamua. And if Oumuamua looks and acts and smells like an asteroid, that tells us something about the probable origin story of Oumuamua, because asteroids form in a certain way. They live in a certain place in a, in a solar system. And so that can tell us about maybe how it got kicked out and started traveling the interstellar distances. If it looks and acts and smells like a comet, however, well, comets are born in a different way. Comets live in a different place in their home solar system. So it'd be a different mechanism for it getting kicked out and traveling through interstellar space to reach us. So really, we were discussing in the classification of Oumuamua, we were discussing how it got started. And then the most puzzling thing is, it's neither. It's not quite an asteroid, and it's not quite a comet, which opens up a whole new class of questions. Is Oumuamua representative of a whole new kind of object that's not quite comet, not quite asteroid, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, and most of the interstellar junky bits that are floating around look a lot like Oumuamua? Or was Oumuamua an exception to a general rule? And we just happened to get unlucky with our one thing that we happened to see. And and when we look at the properties of this object, it it's definitely in a sort of unique situation as far as the objects we know goes. We know that it is relatively red in color. Of all the objects we know of, it's probably similar to like Pluto or Charon in terms of its color, which makes you say, oh, maybe it's more comet or Kuiper Belt object-like. But when it came close to our sun, and it came pretty close to the sun, it came well interior to the orbit of Jupiter and even Mars, um, it didn't appear to develop a tail. We didn't see any off-gassing volatiles from it, which suggests, oh, maybe it's more like an asteroid than it is like a comet. And then when we started watching it over time and watching its light curve, we discovered actually this object is tumbling and it's extremely elongated because the amount of light it reflects varies tremendously over time. And so when we infer what sort of shape would it have, assuming that it's relatively uniform in its reflectivity or albedo, um, then we conclude actually it should be eight to ten times longer on its long axis than it is on its shortest axis, which is why we've called it a cigar-shaped object. And yet, um, just because we didn't observe 
outgassing doesn't mean there isn't any. Uh, those of you who are listening when this uh, when this podcast first comes out knows that we're approaching the second of the two big meteor showers that are good and reliable every year. The first one is the Perseids. That happens in August. But the second one is the Geminids, which happens in early December. The Perseids, they are caused by a comet Swift Tuttle, which has a 133-year period. It's definitely a Kuiper Belt object, it's definitely a comet, and it makes this big debris stream, which it generates from passing close to the sun, heating up and off-gassing. But the Geminids don't come from a comet. The Geminids come from an asteroid. The asteroid they come from is 3200 Phaeton. And if you've been observing the Geminids for a couple of decades, you may have noticed that in general, it's tended to intensify. We see more meteors per hour now than we did a few years ago. And this is because Phaeton is continuing to outgas, which is something we didn't know a few years ago. If you had looked up papers from like the mid 2000s, it would have said Phaeton is dead. It is an asteroid that's outgassed all its volatiles already. But that's not true. We've discovered very recently that it is still outgassing. So when it comes to this interstellar object, this interloping Oumuamua, or however you choose to say it, I can't pretend that I actually know how to pronounce it correctly. Um, what we're actually looking at is some object that seems to be exhibiting some properties of a comet, some properties of an asteroid, and some properties that may lead you to think it's actually neither. Paul, do you have any speculations on what you think the origin of this object might be? I wish I could even speculate, because we are in what we like to say is a very data poor situation we have one example this is it this is like by analogy by try like trying to estimate the number of intelligent creatures in the universe we have one sample of that and that's us are we special are we not special you can argue about it all day but at the end but at the end of that day you don't have any data or you have very limited data and so we have one object we have just have this one that's already on its way out, and we don't even have the greatest observations of that one because we caught it on its way out. And what can we say from that? What conclusions can we draw? We can, we can study it as much as we can. We can do our best to reconstruct its orbit, to understand the properties that it observe that we observe. But beyond that, what do we have to to test hypotheses with no and that's a really good point because there are a lot of hypotheses out there people people when you have one instance of something right and and you only have a limited amount of data there are a lot of conceivable explanations for it it could be a comet that has lost most of its volatiles over a very long period of time we've never seen what happens to an object as it travels through interstellar space for millions or maybe billions of years it's possible that 
this object is cigar shaped like we think it is the same way that a river rock can start off with whatever shape you want but as it bounces along the river floor and hits against the other rocks and gets eroded that it will weather down to a smooth elongated shape dependent on all the other factors of the objects around it that it interacts with Oumuamua could have been just like that it could have been a larger comet or a larger asteroid or a larger centaur or some other type of um, characteristic object that we haven't even thought of because we don't have them present here that's been weathered by the interstellar medium. Some people like to speculate by tracing the orbit back, oh, what stars were nearby there? And there's a paper that's out recently saying maybe it came from the Pleiades, and maybe it did, but also maybe it came from billions of other stars at billions of other possible times. It doesn't have to have come from the first system we could track it back to. It could have come from a system that ejected it millions or hundreds of millions or billions of years before with only one object with only one member of the sample we can't really conclude very much about it other than it's at least possible for such objects to exist in our local corner of the universe now when we go ahead to the major speculations that have been thrown about no let me ask you paul what's your opinion on based on what we know what do you think are some likely possibilities for where Oumuamua could have come from Oumuamua based on the evidence is a rock that came from outer space (laughs) (laughs) I like this conservative approach I like this I am super conservative I'm super conservative because uh, the data or the lack of data demand that I be conservative. It, 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 of course, we can have ideas and we can begin to form hypotheses and we can make some solid cases that, hey, maybe we should have dedicated observing missions to, to look for more examples that might be passing through the solar system that we're just not lucky enough to catch yet. But beyond that, who knows? All right. So it sounds like one of the things you inherently seem to like to caution people against is is this idle speculation with a complete lack of evidence for why you would speculate such things can i can i ask you to sort of expound on that to say why you would like to caution against um some such a wild ideation like this right uh yeah so science thrives on wild ideas That is our bread and butter. You have some data? Okay, explain the data. That is our job. Explain our observations. Explain the universe that we live in. And thankfully, mysteries abound, so we have some decent job security. Science requires ideas to survive and to thrive. But just having an idea isn't good enough for science. We have a higher barrier for entry. Your idea must be testable. You have to elevate your idea from, hey, I wonder if this this is it, to here's how I can go about testing this idea. You have to change it from an idea into a hypothesis. That 
is the core of fruitful scientific discussions. That is the core of how we advance our understanding of the universe by providing and offering testable ideas and actually going out and testing those ideas. So speculate away. Come up with crazy ideas until the sun goes down. But if you want to advance our scientific understanding, then you must come up with ways to test those ideas. And those are the ones that you share with other scientists, with the community that you attempt to publish, that you go through peer review, because that is how we actually try to learn. All right. I like that a lot. I think that's that's a very good explanation of why you have to be skeptical of ideas that don't have evidence behind them. So for this object, one of the most interesting observations is actually something that our most naive explanations and our most naive theories don't appear to explain. Earlier this year, uh, there was a paper that came out about saying, okay, we've reconstructed the trajectory of this object. It came in, flew by the sun, flew away, and we watched it move away from the sun. What you would expect is saying, okay, it came in at a high speed, passed close by the sun, shot off again. It should follow a hyperbolic orbit. It should follow a hyperbola. That's what the laws of gravity predict. And also, as it moves away, um, we should be able to calculate exactly what the acceleration is. It should accelerate towards the sun as it speeds away because that's the dominant gravitational factor. And we could calculate the effects of the other planets too, and that should come up, that should allow us to conclude, okay, how fast is this moving away? But as we watched Oumuamua depart our solar system, it didn't quite follow that predicted hyperbolic path. According to the best orbital reconstruction we've been able to muster, we saw it speed up as it moved towards the sun and then slowed down as it moved away from the sun, but not at the predicted rate. It's as though on top of all the gravitational force, there was a slight extra force that pushed it away from the sun in addition to what gravitational attracted attraction predicted. So you know that anytime you see a physical phenomenon that doesn't match with our simple naive predictions, that's when the job of a theorist comes in to say, hey, something else has to play a major role in addition to what we'd normally naively consider. So with that in mind, uh, Paul, what would you as a responsible scientist start to think about as a potential explanation? Oh, that, that's a very good point. And my first, the go-to, the go-to explanation for observations that you don't, under, don't understand is that maybe the observations are wrong. That is the default. That is the easiest thing. That is the easiest thing of maybe we screwed up. And you know what? That, ex that ends up explaining a lot of things. Uh, that we have relatively poor measurements when it comes to a muamua. It may not be certain that this history of its trajectory that you presented, it, it, we could be wrong. We may have missed measurement or the, the uncertainties, the errors are so large that we can't really make confident statements. So 
that's the first pass is are we sure something weird is going on here and that's and the I, first would, I would like to add on to that a little bit because even though if you've read the paper you can read the extraordinary confidence that the researchers who published this said they have that accounts for the errors we know we have i'm going to get a little rumsfeldian on you right we have the known knowns we know what it is that we know and we have the known unknowns that's where our what we call statistical uncertainties come from we know that there are some inherent uncertainties to our measurements to the techniques we use these are the known unknowns where we get into problems are the unknown unknowns. This is where there could be an error in how we do things that we're not even aware of. These could be the errors that systematically bias our results towards higher accelerations or smaller brightnesses or something that we haven't fully considered. There are many, many great important finds throughout history that have reached that critical five sigma threshold for discovery that were later walked back not because the data wasn't there but because there was this type of bias and that's the type of bias you're talking about here is not that oh they didn't take good data or their measurements were bad or their telescopes weren't calibrated correctly this is a type of error that could be systematically affecting all of the results but because we don't know what we're looking for, we wind up with a biased answer. Yes, that's exactly right. And this is this is this is the meat and potatoes of science. So ideas are how we move forward, but the actual work is done in deciding how good our observations are and how well we actually understand the data because that is where the rubber meets the road that is where observations meet hypotheses and we end up with actual viable theories is in this work in the data analysis work and so the first pass is okay maybe we don't fully understand the data maybe nature is lying to us happened before if we're confident that no the observations can stand on their own and we did a good job and we understand all the sources of uncertainty and this is a real measurable thing then the next pass is well hey you know what we live in a pretty complicated universe don't we with all sorts of things happening all the time where it's known physics known things behaving in a un, in a unknown way so it's nothing new per se in terms of physical understanding of our universe or how comets behave or how asteroids behave or how outgassing behaves or how tumble you know tumbling spinning rocks orbiting the sun behaves there's nothing new there but this is a particular scenario that we haven't accounted for so in our mathematical modeling in our understanding we haven't put all the pieces together yet to explain that one particular observation and I think that's that's one of the most important things that I think people often overlook is when you see an observation that your naive explanation can explain, your first instinct shouldn't be to go to the fantastic. It shouldn't be to go to the, the sensational. It should be to say, well, 
using the physics that we know or the astrophysics that we know or the science that we know, what are some processes that could be occurring that would cause this same type of effect that we saw? Could it be due to the fact that we haven't accounted for dark matter? And the answer is probably not, but that's something to consider. Could it be due to the fact that there is volatile material on the surface of this tumbling object that heats up outgasses and pushes it? Just because we didn't see signs of a comet-like tail doesn't mean there isn't some outgassing occurring that's below the threshold of our observations at the distances that this object was when we were looking at it. Could it be like, for example, the Pioneer satellites? Could mm -hmm. they be accelerating anomalously due to the fact that the object itself is being heated unevenly? We've made this assumption that Oumuamua is of a constant albedo, that it's made of the same materials all around. But there's not necessarily any evidence of this. It could be an object that's darker on one side than another, that's more absorptive of sunlight and more reflective on sunlight on two different sides, much like Saturn's moon Iapetus. Or it could have something to do with the solar wind or the solar radiation pressure interacting with with this object. We have no idea what the density of this object is and if it's a low enough density object. Something like a uh, like a pumice type object where it's got a lot of empty space inside of it but it also has volatiles on it or reflective coating on it or just some generic properties. It's possible that the solar radiation pushing against the object itself causes it to accelerate a little bit faster than expected than it would be due to gravity alone. And so you think about these explanations, and some of them are more likely, some of them are less likely, some of them can be constrained by the data, some of them can't be constrained by the data. All of these sound plausible to me. What about you, Paul? Do you have any others, or do you think that these maybe do or don't sound plausible? Yeah, this is this is where we are. We don't have very high quality observations of a muamua. We haven't spotted any brothers or sisters or cousins or aunts or uncles of a muamua also passing through the solar system so that we can play the compare and contrast game. We know we just have these very sparse data points about its about its elongation that we've been able to infer, about its orbit and its trajectory, uh, that's it. And so there are a million things, a million combinations of physics that could explain this observation that are perfectly mundane but applied in a very non-mundane scenario, but we have no way of testing because that's it. This is all we got for now. And yet, it somehow seems to me that the astrophysics scenarios we hear about in the popular media that get the most traction and the most traffic and the most word of mouth aren't any of the things we just discussed. Uh, when we heard a lot about fast radio bursts a year ago, we didn't hear about how fast radio bursts could be caused by a wide variety of astrophysical mechanisms. We heard about this very unlikely explanation of aliens. When we 
learned about Tabby's star or Boyajan's star, the, the star with the interesting flux dips, but that doesn't appear to have the uh, infrared radiation that you would expect for a dusty star. Um, a lot of astrophysicists were very interested in it, but the public didn't really hear about it until someone proposed that perhaps alien megastructures were being constructed around this distant star, like some sort of Dyson swarm. And then a lot of people started hearing about it, even though alien megastructures, pretty unlikely. And now... It's just recently been put forth that this interstellar interloper, Oumuamua, might be an alien probe with a thin reflective light sail on it, a scaled-up version of a breakthrough starshot-like project put forth by a Harvard researcher who's one of the leaders of the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. What a coincidence! Yeah, yeah, I think this is clearly the most likely explanation. How about you? This is not even an explanation. In the famous words, I love this word. I haven't used this yet. This is the first time. So I've done a few interviews about this recent news story. The famous words, not even wrong. And why, why would you say that? Why would you say not even wrong? Because when you advance an idea... And, and the paper that this appeared in has a few ideas of explaining this anomalous trajectory of Oumuamua. When you say, maybe it's aliens, when you, when you whisper those words, because aliens are intelligent, they can manipulate their environments. They can change things. They can do things outside of the normal rules of physical processes. Because they can manipulate their environments, they can change their environment. Aliens are capable of explaining any observation you might possibly have. Anything. Anything in nature that you don't understand. Like, wow, we can't come up with a decent explanation for that. Well, it could be aliens. Because aliens can craft their environment and they can change how a star's output might be, how a rock might fly through our solar system. They have infinite flexibility. And so they can explain any observation, which means they are fundamentally untestable. It sounds like what you're saying is that when you try and come up with a scientific explanation for something, you're looking at natural, physical, or chemical, or biological, you're looking at natural processes that can occur. And you're looking for a natural explanation for what you assume is a natural phenomenon. So when you say aliens, you're immediately throwing that out because you're immediately looking at a supernatural explanation for what you were hoping is a natural phenomenon. So I could have said, oh, this is the lunar vampires causing this, and that's the same as saying aliens. Or I could say, oh, it was a, a five-dimensional being who poked their finger into our four-dimensional universe and pushed this object a little extra, and that's the same as saying aliens. Um, Carl Sagan was famous for saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and Christopher Hitchens went a step further and said what can be asserted without evidence 
must be dismissed without evidence. Um, because it sounds like when you say aliens, unless you have a surefire test or observable signature or known expectation for what exactly an alien signature would look like as opposed to a natural signature, it sounds like this is just leaving the realm of science behind. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. It's it's an idea. And a solar sail attached to a mumua is an idea. And you know what? It might even be correct. An idea is, like you said, a, a five-dimensional creature poking their finger into our lower-dimensional substrate and nudging it might even be correct. But we have no way of testing it, so it is not a valid scientific hypothesis. And we cannot, as scientists, entertain that we, because it doesn't answer any questions it doesn't advance our understanding it doesn't give us hooks that we can leverage onto our next ledge of understanding the universe we must reject it out of hand because it's not high quality enough we have standards here so are you saying that even if avi Loeb's theory is correct um, I hesitate to call it a theory. Let's call it an idea. Idea. Even if Avi Loeb's idea is correct, and Umuamua has a light sail attached to it, and this light sail is reflecting the sunlight, causing the anomalous acceleration, it sounds like you're saying, okay, well, let's ask the next question. If that's right, what does this teach us? Nothing. What does this explain? Nothing. What does this lead us to be able to predict? Nothing. Because there's no... Right? When you make a scientific theory, your goal is to not only explain what you can already explain and this one new observation that you couldn't explain, you want to be able to use that idea to make predictions that you can go out and observe, that you can go out and test, that you can go out and make observations or measurements of the universe to say, what else does this imply if this is true and how can we test that right when Einstein's gravity replaced Newton's gravity he didn't just say oh I solved the problem of Mercury's orbit it's all done I'm right Newton's wrong game over no he needed another type of experiment where his theory made different discernible predictions from Newton's theory and that's why the 1919 solar eclipse was such a big deal if this light sail is attached to this interstellar interloper and causing this acceleration, I can't think of any new predictions that this leads to. I can't think of something that we can feasibly measure, especially when this is the only known interstellar interloper we've ever had. Yep, that's exactly right. There's, we haven't learned with this statement being made. We haven't advanced. We haven't been given the opportunity to advance. We're in the exact same state we were as if the paper was never even written. And so we have to ask ourselves, we have to honestly ask ourselves, what was the value? How was science advanced? How, how were we made smarter, better, faster, stronger 
by having these ideas encapsulated in paper form and submitted for publication to a journal. What was the value? So it sounds like you're, uh, you're contending here that this paper being published in a scientific journal and being promoted to the general public, and for most people who read it, uh, this is the most and newest and most, you know, I'll say glorious information they ever received about this object, uh, that this is actually harmful to the public understanding of science because it replaces the actual potential scientific explanations, right? The, the ones that involve nothing more than the natural phenomena already present and well understood in our universe with these fantastic explanations that are not scientific, but simultaneously masquerade as science. Yeah, you're exactly right. And someone in my Twitter feed, Thaddeus Papke, actually, to give him credit, uh, came at this from an archaeology perspective. And he said, this is exactly what archaeologists face when a news article hits or there's hubbub about aliens build building the pyramids. As soon as you introduce that, all the attention focuses on that. And there's no attention on the actual science of how these wonderful ancient cultures can build megastructures, if you will, uh, that are testaments to their creativity and ingenuity and engineering and skill of mathematics. Instead, it's all about aliens, and it shuts down genuine science conversation, even though it's exciting, even though it's sexy, even though it's fun to think about. It's not science, and so it ultimately harms honest discussions about science. So it sounds like what you'd really like to caution against is this idea of science fantasy um, replacing the actual science, which the public should be hearing about and excited about and should be reported on, but which that seems to require that the reporters themselves be more responsible than simply peddling what they believe is going to get the most eyeballs because it captures the imagination the greatest. That's not necessarily implying that the thing you imagine actually has scientific value, and you're contending that this in particular does not. Right, exactly. And I'll take it even one step further. I am not going to put the blame on the journalists, in, especially in this case with Oumuamua. I'm going to assume that journalists are going to do what journalists do, which is try to keep their jobs and pay for their mortgages and their families. And they do that by selling ads. They do that by getting ad revenue, by getting eyeballs, by getting clicks. So I'm going to assume that journalists are going to take the most extreme headline possible that they can get away with, that they'll spin it in a particular way. And I'll know that journalists have are bound by rules, and they're not just going to make things up. They have to go to a source. They have to get quotes. They have to pull from a journal article. They have to go to the scientists themselves. And so I'm putting the blame on the scientists. That you know exactly how this game is played. You know every single time you pick up the phone, this is to any scientist, every single time you pick up the phone for an interview or respond to an email, that your words could be twisted 
could be pulled out of context to fit fit a narrative. You, the scientist, must be careful. Ultimately, if there were no journal article, there'd be no story. If Avi Loeb and, and his collaborators never picked up the phone or just simply said, oh, no, I'm not going to I'm not I'm not providing quotes for that story. I'm sorry. Click or never responded to an email. There would it would have died, you know, in the cradle. This would not have been an issue. But the existence of the paper itself, the going on the media, the, the talking to the media, where else do you think? as a scientist, this was going to end up. So you're sort of looking at this and what you're seeing based on your experience is this is an example of a glory grab by scientists in a non-scientific realm that they are they are using their reputation as good scientists they're using their previous good scientific work that they've done they're using the name of their institution that they're associated with right because i i saw this all as harvard scientists harvard 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 scientists shmuel bailey and avi loeb um say this could have been an alien created light sail from a distant extraterrestrial civilization um and you're saying this is not sensationalist science this is not ill-motivated science this is fantasy posing as science that has been disseminated into the world with the authority of scientists claiming that this is real science and it's not and that this is dangerous and detrimental to people who actually want to understand and learn the natural truths about the universe yep that's exactly right so this is the article itself in my view was 90 percent fine and 10 percent bad science and the the communication of this article to the media and the willingness to go to the media is bad science communication. There are already YouTube videos and articles aplenty. Like you said, Harvard scientists say Oumuamua was an alien spacecraft. Boom. No, and we get we, this all the time, right? Yeah, NASA scientists yeah. say cold fusion is possible. NASA scientists say, um, you know, faster than light travel is just an engineering breakthrough away. Harvard scientists say aliens, blah, blah, blah. What do we do as scientists, science communicators, referees to quash this, to fix this problem, to put the kibosh on this, to prevent science from succumbing to the same claims of fake news that the rest of the world is yep. getting hit with? Uh, I think there's a few ways. One is we have to take members of our own scientific community to task. I don't care if Avi Loeb is the chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department. I've known Avi, Avi for several years, and but I will I will write him and you know I will tell him to his face that this was a bad idea, and uh, not as like you know a sacrament like a, you know a white knight or something, but just like we must be vigilant within our community to say this is these are the ideas we talk about, these are the ideas we share with the public or share with each other. We have to be on the ball all the time. And once these kinds of stories break, 
we have to be careful that of what we say to the media. We have to be careful of what we say to the public, knowing that it will be distorted, knowing that we'll be pulled out of context, even if our intentions are good and our motives are pure and our science is sound. We, it's up to us. And then once it's out there, I know for years I'm going to be fighting this. I guarantee three years from now someone will come up to me and say, oh, yeah, what about that Amuamua? I heard it was a solar sail. We see any more of those? guarantee it because it's two years after the alien megastructure tabby star still answering questions about it uh, and the only like i feel bad i have a who who do you feel of, bad for though like yeah, in I've, what I've way an, do you feel bad i have an enormous amount of sympathy for the general public because with all sorts of you know fake news of bad science how do you with no scientific training sort out the good from the bad how can you tell when one article of like oh yeah this is bs this is this is scientists just trying to get their name on something you know they're not doing a good job from like wow this is really science solid science this is a surprising result this is really fun and exciting and new if you don't have like a decade of building those tools, then what I want to do as a science communicator is try to give you some of those tools to try to equip you so that you can make these decisions on your own so that you can smell it a mile away so that you have the confidence in your own understanding of science and how science works and operates that you can provide your own filters. That's my ultimate end game: is to equip people with their own tools. You know, that's that's really good. But it's important, I think, to recognize that even scientists, professionals, right? You want to give these tools and this toolkit to to lay people, to to armchair physicists or astronomers or scientists, but actual bona fide professional scientists succumb to this all the time where someone has an agenda someone has a a strategy of the conclusion they want to reach and so what they'll do is they will present a certain amount of evidence in a certain fashion to support that conclusion while ignoring some of the either cardinal rules of how you responsibly do science or some huge components of the larger suite of evidence. And they can do this to sort of wedge their perspective into the scientific discussion around it, but more importantly, into the general public's consciousness about it. So we see a whole lot of this happening. This is a strategy that was made famous by creationists in the 80s and 90s, um, but lots of other people have picked it up. Uh, climate scientists who are who have contrarian viewpoints to the mainstream viewpoint do this all the time people who are contrarians in their own field for example about dark matter will ignore large suites of cosmological evidence in order to present their no dark matter theories of the universe and so then when you go a step further into fantasy into speculation into aliens is the answer we're putting a lot of onus on people 
who don't have this training and who this isn't their job to say you be the responsible one to say this doesn't fail this doesn't pass the smell test and then at the same time we're saying oh but the referee who refereed this paper who didn't step in and say your conclusion is wildly unreasonable you need to edit this part of the paper keep the 90 percent that's good you can't put this 10 percent in there if the referee didn't do that how can we expect the general public to be responsible at it i'm not saying that they shouldn't be or that your ambition isn't a solid one but i'm trying to recognize what a challenge this actually is Oh, it's a challenge. It's an uphill battle, but it's it's a hill I'll die on. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you for fighting the good fight, Paul. Once again, Paul, Paul's new book is out, is Your Place in the Universe. It has a glorious picture on the front cover of what looks to be a star-forming galaxy or nebula with a background. It's vaguely of stars. spacey. Vaguely it's vaguely spacey, spacey by Paul Matt Sutter out November 20th. Get it in Barnes & Noble, Powell's, bookstores all across the country, um, or at Amazon. And thank you, Paul, for being my guest and for telling the world about responsible science and the remarkable story of the interstellar interloper, Oumuamua. Any last words? Nope, that's perfect. What a way to wrap it up. All right. Well, in that case, I'd like to go ahead and say... Thank you for tuning in to the Starts With a Bang podcast. This is only made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Matt Rumel, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Chris Shaw, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Jens Kroger, William Barr, Laird WH, Daniel Nadasi, Eric Brown, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Frederick Martello, Sean Foley, Elver Sosa, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcik, Danny, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Andrew T. Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Dick Pills, Joseph Dvorak, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Charles Buchanan, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Fletch, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Jeffrey Kidd, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Nick Delroy, Ronan Yechazel, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Patrick Dennis, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Joe McFarlane, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, John Seal, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you here next time for more Starts With a Bang. 